good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Kevin. If we have never met before, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at church, uh, Grace Church. Thank you guys for coming out. Again, I want to welcome those of you guys who are watching online as well. Before we get into the teaching day, I want to give you guys an air conditioner update because that's pretty exciting to do. And so uh, you guys, if you've been around here for the past month or so, you have know that like every once in a while we're like, hey, it's a little warm, we're working on the AC. And then like two weeks later, we're like, hey, it's a little warm, we're working on the AC. So here's what's going on. So there's an air conditioner unit sitting on the roof up here, and there's a part that we need to fix it properly that is on back order. And so every week uh, we're like, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? We don't know. And then it doesn't work. And then we call them out and they uh, do a really good job of finding a way to trick the system into working, which lasts for a little while, but is not the permanent solution. So that's what's going on. So if you hear someone walking on the roof, it's not Santa. It is the air conditioner guy. He is back and uh, he's working on it. So I think literally like while Colin was praying, I heard the vents kick on. So hopefully it's working. Uh, It's not too bad in here right now, but that's what's going on. So we are aware of the problem. Uh, we're doing our best to make it work until we get the permanent solution. So that's what's going on. Not too bad right now, but I just want to give you guys the update why they, we keep having problems with that. So, so as we get started today, uh, I want to give you guys an analogy to kind of set up where we're going that I first used with, with a bunch of college students back when I was doing college ministry. And so I want you guys to imagine with me, so all the ladies in the room, whether you are single or married, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are married and that you, uh, you live somewhere locally here, and uh, maybe it's Medina, Brunswick, Wadsworth. This is imaginary scenario, so you can pick where you live. Uh, we'll assume that you, you own your own house and that you have somewhere between two to four kids. Again, this is imaginary. You can decide how many kids you want in this imaginary story. And let's say that every day when your husband comes home, that he goes out of his way to tell you just how much he loves you. Let's imagine that your husband is also musically talented and that there have even been times where he has written songs to you expressing just how much he loves you. And I also want you to imagine that on the wall when you walk into your house, there's this canvas that he bought for you guys that says always and forever, again, a way to express just how much he loves you. And then I want you to imagine one day that you're checking your bank account and you notice that there's a charge for something from 1-800-Flowers. And you think to yourself, I have the greatest husband in the world. And inside, you're super excited about the gift, but you decide, you know what, I'm going to wait and just let it be a surprise. But the problem is, the gift never comes. You wait, and after a few weeks, you never get any flowers. And so you go back to your uh, bank, and you see that there's actually a history of this, where every month, like clockwork, there is a charge for 1-800-Flowers that you have never received. And so eventually, you decide, you ask your spouse about it, you say, hey, honey, what's the deal with all these flower charges? And I want you to imagine that your husband tells you that every month he sends flowers to another woman at his work. That every month he spends $50 to buy a bouquet of roses for the young girl who sits across from him. Now, if you were the wife in this scenario, how do you feel about this? Right? Yeah, you you would be ticked. You would be very upset at this. And so as his wife, you would look at your husband and you would say, husband, how can you do this to me? To which your husband responds, do what? It's only flowers, right? I don't actually love her. I, I love you, right? I tell you I love you every day. I put that ring on your finger. Remember, remember the thing on our wall when you walk in our house? And do you remember that song that I wrote you? Do, do you remember the song, right? Just because I buy another woman flowers, that does not mean that I love her. Now, poll question for the ladies in the room, show of hands. How many of you, if your husband gave you that response, you would believe him? Okay. Same thing as last night, if you're watching online, zero hands went up, right? Nobody is buying into that story. And the reason none of us would buy into that is because I think that there is an inseparable link between the things that we are willing to spend our money on and the things that we care about. 
Right, you guys know that if a guy is willing to spend $50 a month, $600 a year on, a, on another woman, that regardless of what his words or his lips say, right, there is something inside of him. His actions clearly show and declare that he has feelings for her. Right? That on some level, his heart is drawn to her. And I think this connection between our heart and our money is something that we actually experience in all kinds of different areas of our life. And so, for example, maybe a lighter example, think back to what you spent your allowance on as a kid. What is the thing that you spent your allowance on as a kid? Because whatever it was, was something at that point in your life you were really excited and cared about. And so when I was a kid, the thing that I would always save up my money for was baseball cards. I don't know how I got into this or why I got into this, but I loved collecting baseball cards as a kid. These are some of the 90s baseball cards I had. I just dated myself by showing you some of these pictures. And, uh, but, but I would, like, save up my money for this. And I wouldn't just, like, save up, like, a week. Like, I would go, like, m- for months saving up money so I could buy not just a pack of cards but, like, an entire box of baseball cards because for whatever reason, that's what I cared about. I think the same thing is still true of us as adults. And so if you spend, some of you guys spend lots of money on Starbucks, while others of you, you spend lots of money at the gym. And some of you, you will spend lots of money on clothing, while others of you, you will spend lots of money on your car. And the reality is where you spend your money, it tells you something about what you care about. And so if we were to open up your bank account, we would discover that some of you in this room, you care a whole lot about how you dress, but you don't care at all about how you eat. And there are others of you, if you opened up your bank account, we'd see the opposite, that you, we, you care a whole lot about what you eat, but you don't really care a whole lot about how you dress. And the interesting thing is, well, if we were to look at someone's bank account, you can actually learn a whole lot about someone simply by looking at where they spend their money. Because there is this link between the things that we care about and the things that we're willing to spend our money on. So if today's your first time here, right now we find ourselves in a summer-long series that we are calling Jesus Over All. And one of the things that Tony said when he first launched this series is the fact that whenever we get this out of order, whenever we place anything over Jesus, that we are actually living a disordered life and that we are living outside of what is real and true about our world. And so the premise behind the series is that Jesus, he is over all. And the question is, are we willing to align ourselves to that reality? As you guys can see from this slide, we have been in this series for quite some time now, and we have covered a wide range of topics, right? We've covered all sorts of ground and a wide range of different things over the course of this series. And today, we're going to kick off the final sub-series of this greater series, Jesus Overall. And the final sub-series is this. It's called Jesus Over My Treasure. Jesus Over My Treasure. And specifically, in the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus takes this idea that our money and our passions, that there is a connection between those two, and he's going to apply that reality to our relationship with him. So if you guys have a Bible with you, you can turn uh, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, if you don't have one, you can find one in the seat back in front of you, and we'll be on page 787. Now before we dive in, I do want to preface with a few things today, because anytime you talk about money in the church, people tend to get a little bit nervous. And anytime you talk about money in the church, people start to picture uh, maybe the televangelist in their mind who lives in a million-dollar home or who owns a jet, and he's trying to, like, manipulate people to get money for himself. And so uh, I just want to start by clarifying that I do not own a jet, and I don't plan on having one anytime soon. That's, that's a little out of my range. Uh, and my desire is sim- it's, it's simply not to get money from you today so that I'm going to somehow, like, magically benefit from this. That's not how finances work around here. That is not our heart behind this. But rather, the reason that we're going to talk about money today is because Jesus talks about money. 
And what we're going to realize as we dive into this is he actually talks about it a lot. And because one of the reasons he does is because for Jesus, talking about money is a whole lot more than just money. There's a lot of deeper things and heart things that Jesus cares about. And money is one of those things that really speaks into that. So because Jesus thought money was an important part of discipleship, so do we. And so even though I understand that if we come to a conversation like this where we're talking about money, some of you are going to come to this conversation with a little bit of baggage, maybe of a history or background where you were in a setting where a leader didn't handle money well or abuse that, we get that. We still think this is a really important conversation to have if you want to live your life in align with the reality that Jesus is Lord over all. So with that said, that's where we're headed today. We're going to dive in. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Here's what he says. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so as Jesus launches into his teaching on money, he starts by reminding us of the very temporal nature of this life. He reminds us that all the stuff we like to collect and store up in this life, that it will ultimately, it will never last. It will rust, it will corrode, it will rot, and it will decay. Now, in the days of Jesus, there were three primary types of things that people would actually be tempted to store up. And those things were food, clothing, and money. Food, clothing, and money. And so food for them, it was not like many of the foods today that are injected with a lot of artificial things that probably help it survive for maybe hundreds of years. For them, food was natural, it was organic, and therefore it had a very short shelf life, right? Even stores of grain, things like that, it would have been hard for them to keep for any extended amount of time because mice and insects and just some of the technology and the things that we do did not exist in that day. Clothing would have been the same. One of the more valuable forms of trade in the first century was actually fine clothing, And so it would not be uncommon for families to keep and to pass down and store expensive clothing from one generation to the next. And although clothing, it would last much longer than food. It still had, uh, it was still subject to decay from the elements and attack from things like moss and other creatures, the same as clothing would be today. And in the same way, this would be true of any money or precious metals they would have had, right? They obviously did not have banks in the same way that we have today. And so often it was very common that they would take their expensive uh, metals or, or money and they would actually bury it in the ground, which was a great way to hide it. But it also, in doing so, what they would do is they would expose it to the elements, which would increase the chances and accelerate rusting and aging quicker and the decay of that metal. And obviously on top of all of that, as Jesus mentioned, right, there's always still the chance that someone could come along and they could just steal or take one of these things that was so precious to your family. And the point remains the same for all of this, that all of these things were temporal. All of these things would eventually start to lose their value. Now, if you fast forward to today, we now have things like refrigerators and preservatives and Ziploc bags for our food. And we have Rubbermaid tubs to store our clothes in and safety deposit boxes that you can store your valuables in. But at the end of the day, despite all of our efforts to preserve our stuff, at the end of the day, all these things are still very temporal, Right, Even if we can preserve them for this life, at the end of the day, when we die, none of these things get to go with you. And so as Jesus starts his teaching on money, he starts with a very direct command. He says, do not store up this kind of stuff. Don't collect it. Don't stockpile it. Stop chasing after more and more of it. Why? Because he says at best, these things only have temporary value. They only have value for this life. But he says, but rather, 
He says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which will never rust or fade, and it can never be stolen. He says, instead of investing in and stockpiling temporary and fleeting things, you should invest your resources in eternal and in lasting things. Jesus says, even though most of the things in this life will not last, there are certain types of things that you can invest in that will have an eternal and a lasting impact. And then Jesus says the following phrase, verse 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus concludes his first section by reminding us that where you choose to invest your resources, it not only impacts your future, but it also gives you insight into the things that you care most about. Almost like an MRI can see into our body to see if there is ligament damage in our knee or cancer in our lungs, Jesus tells us that the things that you and I spend our money on, that they give us a window that allows us to see into our heart and give us an accurate picture of what is really going on in there. And so if we go back to the story from the beginning, what this verse reminds us of is something that I think all of us, we all instinctively know to be true. We all know that a husband can't buy flowers for another woman and have it mean nothing. We all know that regardless of what he says, his bank account is declaring something very different. Why? Well, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because there is this inseparable link between the things that we are willing to spend money on and the things that we care most deeply about. And the reason Jesus is teaching this is because there were some people in the first century who would say one thing, but their actions would declare something very different. They would say, God, we love you. God, you're amazing. God, we put our hope in you. We put our trust in you. But their bank account would declare something very different than what they were saying. So there's a lot of places you can find some scripture. Let me, guys, let me just give you guys one example. So here's what Jesus says, Matthew 15. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus says, you say one thing, but their words, their words do not line up with their actions. And the context of this passage, you guessed it, it's money. The context is the fact that they were actually trying to find loopholes to financially, uh, to get out of financially supporting their own parents as they age, and they were actually using God as an excuse to do so. And Jesus says, you guys are claiming to put me first, but your money is telling me that your heart is far, it is far from me. And so Jesus doesn't stop there. He actually continues to press into them. So here's what he says, verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so in order to further make his point and to kind of push in, Jesus uses an analogy about the human eye. And to be completely honest, this analogy is one that I think often gets lost in translation for most modern listeners. And if you're just glancing at this, you're like, I have no idea. What in the world does that even mean? But the good news for us is that if you were here a couple years ago, you remember that Pastor Seth actually taught on this passage. So this is August 14 of 2021, two years ago. We were in a series called Motives, and uh, Pastor Seth taught on this passage and specifically focused on this little analogy in the middle. And he did a phenomenal job at breaking this down for us. So if you're interested in like hearing the full extended version, 
Here's where it is. Go back. You can listen to it. I'm going to try and give you guys a, a recap and a summary of what Pastor Seth explained for us here. And so if you dive into this analogy, or this uh, little analogy in the middle here, the word healthy that you find in the middle, it is the word um, hapless, which means healthy or singleness, sincerity, morality, whole, or faithful, right? And so you kind of start to get a, a sense of the different ways this word can be used. And when you break this word down into its various parts, here's how it breaks down. So the word hap means single, and the word plus means to braid together. So the idea that there's something that is uh, single and something that is being braided together. So again, what in the world does that mean? So here's the picture that he's trying to paint. It's the idea that if you have two healthy functioning eyes, they are each seeing things and taking things in, and these two images then go into your brain and your braid weaves them and braids them together into one single healthy coherent image. Right, Two eyes seeing things that are braided together into one coherent image. And for most of us who have healthy eyes, this happens millions of times a day, and we never even think about it because our eyes are healthy. It just happens. But one of the things that Pastor Seth has dealt with and has actually been diagnosed with is the opposite of this, and it's something called diplopia, better known as double vision, Right? And so when you have double vision, what you get are you get two competing images. You see two things, your brain does not weave them together the right way, and you have two competing images that do not coherently fit together. And so to the best of my ability, what I think Jesus is trying to say is that some of his audience, that they almost have a spiritual form of diplopia, that they have double vision. That some of them, instead of having a single focus on God, what they have is they have a dual focus. And so there is part of them that is genuinely focused in trying to follow and please God, but they also have a second focus. And that other focus is one that covets money and wealth. And these two things, not only do they not fit together, they are incompatible, and they are in competition with each other. And in fact, the word that Jesus uses for unhealthy eyes, it actually takes it a step further than double vision. It's actually worse. The word that he uses is poneros, which means bad, diseased, wicked, or evil. There's another place in scripture that uses the same word to describe a tree that has uh, gone bad or the fruit on the tree has become diseased. And so Jesus says when you do this, when you have this dual focus, when you try and pursue wealth and me at the same time, he says it's more than just difficult. It's actually a sign that your faith has gone bad or is diseased or even worse, maybe it has become evil. And this understanding and this interpretation of this little analogy, it is reinforced and confirmed in the very next verse. Check out what Jesus says next, verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right, Jesus presses into this dual focus and says, guys, this is not going to work. You cannot be fully devoted to both. Now, we do know from other passages that the language of love and hate does not mean that you must literally hate money. And so, for example, uh, in Luke 14, we read the following. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And what 
almost every single commentator will universally agree upon is that it does not mean that you should actually hate your family, but what it does mean is if you want to follow God, you must be willing to prioritize God over your family, that you must be willing to put him first. And so in the same way, when Jesus tells us that we must hate money, he does not mean you must literally hate your money, right? That you have to get rid of it or abandon it, that you can never think about it, you can't have a budget. Like, he's not saying those things, but what he is saying is that you must fully and completely prioritize Jesus over your money. He says, you cannot fully chase after me and fully chase after wealth and money at the same time. He says, those things are in competition in you must choose. And so the call that Jesus leaves his first century audience with is really the same premise of our entire Jesus over series, right? Jesus wants to know if they're willing to align themselves with the reality that he truly is Lord over all because all, everything that includes our money. And so in light of this passage, and just as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I came up with three questions that I think we should ask ourselves. Obviously, there are more questions you could ask yourselves than that, but my brain came up with three, and so we're going to dive into those. So here we go. Here's the first one I think we should ask, and it's simply, what is it that you treasure? What is it that you treasure? What is it that you think about throughout the day? What is it you dream about? What is it that you chase after? What is it that your heart longs for? What is it that you invest your money in? Because where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Theologian D.A. Carson, he said it like this. He said, if a man wants above all else, and it's a key phrase, above all else, to make a lot of money, buy an extravagant house, ski in the Alps, or sail in the Mediterranean, head up his company, or buy out his competitor, build his reputation or achieve that next promotion, advance a political opinion or seek public office, he will be devoured by these goals. And the values of the kingdom will get squeezed out. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now notice that none of the things that he listed in here are inherently bad things, right? There is nothing intrinsically wrong with skiing in the Alps or getting a promotion or advancing a political opinion. It's when the desire for those things becomes greater than our desire for God that they become a problem. And in fact, if you were to read in 1 Timothy 1, we read this, we read that it's not money that is the root of all kinds of evil, it's actually the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And I think when most of us hear that, what what we do is we kind of breathe a sigh of relief and we're like, whew, okay, Well, well, that's better. I can live with that because you see, I don't actually love money I just greatly appreciate it, right? Like, I, I mean, sure, don't get me wrong. Like, I, not, I like nice things, but who, who doesn't like nice things? Just because I enjoy nice things doesn't mean that I love money. And I gotta be honest, when we start to say things like that, right, and I'm in this when you, with you, when I start to think things like that, I think we sound an awful lot like the husband in the opening example. We sound an awful like the husband buying flowers for another woman saying, what, the, those flowers? Ah, those, those don't mean anything. Don't worry about those. That, that's not a big deal. I, those don't really mean anything. And I think the caution that Jesus would give us is he would say, be careful that you don't have double vision. Be careful that you don't have one eye on me 
and one eye on wealth because it is so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we don't have a problem and that our heart is okay when scripture would say the reality is the light that we think is within us is actually darkness. So question number one is what is it that you treasure? This leads to question number two. It's are you investing financially in eternal things? Are you investing financially in eternal things? So as we have already seen, Jesus is about as clear as he can be. He directly tells us, do not store up for yourselves a bunch of stuff, right? He's like, straight up, don't do it. Now, if you were back here in April, you'll remember that we actually spent one of the early parts of this Jesus Over series talking about Jesus over our stuff and how we as a society have a propensity to do the exact opposite of what Jesus tells us to do here. And that we not only tend to ignore his warnings about our stuff, but we live in a culture that tends to celebrate those who have the most stuff, right? We look at the person, the guy or the girl who has all the stuff, and we think you're winning at life. Why? Well, because you have so much stuff. So I'm not going to rehash everything that we talked about in that message, but one of the clear challenges of this passage is to redirect a portion of our financial resources from temporary earthly things and to invest them in eternal and lasting things. Now, the specifics of how to do that, what does it look like? How much should I give? Does this mean I should never invest in the stock market? There's lots of kingdom things. Which kingdom things? All of those are phenomenal questions that we're actually gonna talk about next week. So next week, Pastor Tony is gonna walk us through how a follower of Jesus can navigate all of those sorts of questions as we try and process how to actually live this out. But before we get to those questions, I think the place, the starting place that everyone needs to start at is to simply look at and assess their current reality. What am I currently doing with my money? And so the first step that I think all of us need to do is this. It's to track how you currently spend your money, right? Like literally open up your bank account and start tracking every penny you spend. And if I could steal the language of Pastor Tony, I triple dog dare you to actually do this, right? Like not just like, oh, that's, you know, like, like actually do it. Now, for some of you guys, that will be a fairly easy exercise because you already have a sense of this. You already track the way that you spend your money. But I'm guessing for some of us in this room, we actually have no idea where large amounts of our money goes. We have no idea how much we spend on groceries each month or on eating out or on streaming services or fill in the blank. Now, for my wife and I, uh, we use a program to track our money. It's called Mint.com. If you've never heard of it, it's by the same people that make TurboTax and QuickBooks. And this is something that we started doing uh, when we first got married at the advice of one of our mentors. And we've been doing it ever since. And what a program like this does is it does most of the heavy lifting for you. So I'm not like collecting receipts every week and trying to like track them and put them together. Like this program, you give it some information and it, it, it does the majority of the lifting for you. Now, it is not effortless. Uh, if I go and spend $50 at Target, it has no idea if I just bought toys or clothes or groceries. And so once a week, we do go in and we have to like assign a few things to categories. But for the most part, it does a really, really good job. And it takes a massive amount of the burden off of the plate for you. But here's the beauty of tracking your spending. Whether you do it old school, pen and paper, or use a program like this, here's the beauty of it. This program doesn't lie to you. Right at the end of the week or the end of each month, this program will tell you exactly what you spent on what. And I gotta be honest, there are some weeks when that is encouraging and there are some weeks when that is really painful 
where me and Liz look at it and we go, we spent, oh, I can't believe we spent that much in that. I didn't realize we were even doing that, right? And so there's a bit of both in there. But what I can say for sure is that for Liz and I, tracking our spending has been an incredibly valuable tool, both personally for our marriage, but also for us spiritually as we try to navigate how to follow Jesus with our finances. This has been such a helpful tool. And so this week, my challenge for you is to actually track your spending. Let's do it for an entire week. If I could convince you, I want to tell you to do it for a month. If you're doing it pen and paper, that's going to be a lot harder. If you sign up for one of these programs, once you kind of get it going, it like... It just does its thing. It keeps running for you. But for some of us, that's the first step that we need to take is we need to actually start tracking our spending. For some of you, it will require you to sign up for a program like Mint. For others of you this week, that might be just simply setting aside time to review the tracking that you're already doing. And then after you do that, after you actually track your spending, I want you to simply ask yourself the question, are you investing financially in eternal things? Right? Are you doing the thing that Jesus told you to do? Which leads to the final question, number three. Do you trust Jesus enough to give him control over your money? Do you trust him enough to give him control over your money? Because when it comes to a passage like this, I think all of us universally have the exact same fear that like wells up inside of us, and our fear is this, It's, but what if I don't have enough? Right, it's what every single one of us is thinking right now. I think if we're honest with ourselves, the reason we find it so difficult to live out a passage like this is not because it's confusing, but because we're all afraid that if we actually gave God control of our money, that we wouldn't have enough. Enough to pay the bills, enough to take that trip, enough to buy that thing that we're convinced that we need. And I think this is exactly why the very next words out of Jesus' mouth, the very next thing he teaches on is worry. Check it out, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? As I was studying this week, it was like immediately following his teaching on money, it felt like God was looking straight into my soul and speaking to the very fear that all of us are thinking. He says, guys, I know this is scary and I know this is hard, but if you will simply trust me with your money, then know that I, your heavenly father, will take care of you. And the reason I think this is such a touchy subject for many of us is because if we're honest, we don't actually believe that God's gonna do that. It's because many of us, just like the people Jesus was speaking to, we have put our hope in wealth instead of the God who gives it to us. And one of the really interesting things that stood out to me when I was studying this passage is actually the subtle language choice that Jesus uses when he talks about this. So I don't know if you guys noticed this, but he says, no one can serve two masters. The choice that he gives us is between serving God or serving money. Now, serving God makes sense to me. I get that part. When it comes to my money, I don't think of myself as serving my money. I think of my money as something that is serving me. But that's not the choice Jesus gives us. 
The words that Jesus uses, he uses the same word twice. It literally means to be a slave or to be controlled by. And so the option that Jesus presents them with is not do you want to be in control of your money or who do you want to be in control of your money? The option he presents them with is who do you want to be in control of you? And although this is subtle, I think this is one of the things this passage speaks to is the incredible power that money can have over us. That it's not just something that can distract us from God, but it's actually something that can replace him. Something that we can easily become enslaved to and without even realizing it, find that we are putting our hope and our trust in our money. Which is why this final question is so important. Do you trust Jesus enough to give him control over your money? So with that, I'm going to invite the band back up and while they're closing, let me just close with this thought. Let me just remind you that the goal of this message, it is not to get your money. That's not our goal. That's not our heart behind this. What Jesus is after and what Jesus cares about is you. But he doesn't just want part of you. Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of your heart, all of your passions, and all of your desires. And what Jesus knows is that for many of us, one of his greatest competitors to that is ironically something that he has entrusted us with in the first place, and it's our money and our stuff. And the life that God calls his followers to, it is one of generosity and one of investment in his mission, but it's not, we don't do that because that will somehow earn us or buy us God's love. We do that as a response for those who know just how generous God has already been to us. Are you willing to align yourself with the reality that Jesus is Lord over your treasure, that he has been Lord over your treasure, and that whether you align yourself with it or not, he always will be Lord over our treasure? Let me pray for us. Father, you are, you are good. God, when I think of my own life personally, God, you have been so incredibly generous to me in so many ways. God, one of those ways is with just physical and financial things. God, I have, I have things that are beyond what I deserve, and I am so grateful for that. But God, I also recognize in my own heart, in my own life, that those things can also be a trap, that they can um, pull me away from you, that I can be easily sucked into putting my hope and my trust in those wonderful gifts that you have given me instead of you. God, I assume that I am not alone in that, and that is something that many people in this room are struggling with. So God, I, I pray that you would free us from that, that you would free us from the, the incredibly powerful grip that money can have over us. And God, would you help us get to the point where we can generally trust you and align ourselves to the reality that you actually are in control of our money anyways. God, thanks for being gracious with us and loving us in the moments when we struggle with this. God, we're asking for your help. We love you, we thank you. It's in your son's name, amen.